This week we're talking about filters, when to use them and when not to use them. And you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. This is Nick Page and as always, thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. This week I wanted to talk a bit about filters, when to use them, when not to use them as well as some new gear that I've been using and old accessories that I'm a big believer in. So this is going to be kind of a, a gear episode, could be an expensive one to listen to. Before we jump in, I do want to remind you guys that we have a Facebook group set up for the listeners of the show. We've been having conversations over there about all kinds of things. Some of today's episode is going to be spurred by conversation that we've had over in the Facebook group. So if you want to join that, just do a search for Landscape Photography Podcast. Also, I've been posting a lot to my Patreon page. If you're interested in supporting me and the podcast, as well as getting bonus post-processing content or image critiques, that's all going to be found over at patreon.com slash nickpagephotography. All right. So with that, let's jump into this week's episode where we talk a bit about filters. four main staples of any landscape photographer's setup. There's the camera, there's the lenses, there's the tripod, and then there's the filters. Filters are important and there's definitely a time and place for them. Right at the outset, I wanna say that I am sponsored by Breakthrough Photography Filters. I've been using them for a long time. I've spent lots of money on them. And uh, even if I was not sponsored by Breakthrough Photography, I would still be spending my money on them because I really truly believe that they are the best. They're color cast free. The round filters have a really nice grip and texture around the edge, so you're not gonna get your filters stuck. They're made out of really excellent materials. Just really, really good filters. So. When people ask me what filters are the most important, which filters do I need to get? At the top of that list would be ND filters, just a straight up ND filter. First of all, never a variable ND filter. I think that I use my three stop ND filter the most of all of my filters, just because oftentimes that three stop ND filter is gonna get me to the shutter speed that I'm looking for, because typically when I'm photographing water, that's gonna be the most common time to use an ND filter. When I'm photographing water, I'm not wanting to go really slow with my shutter speed. I'm typically looking for somewhere in that, I don't know, a fifth of a second to maybe one second. And a three-stop ND filter oftentimes is gonna get me to that. My current setup, I have a three-stop ND filter, a six-stop ND filter, and a 10-stop ND filter. But I think the three-stop ND and the 10-stop are the two that I use the most. A six stop is nice. A lot of times that's going to, uh, especially in those later, uh, later uh, darker hours, that's going to get me that really nice long shutter speed that I want. But 10 stop is guaranteed to get me to that long shutter speed. So I think a three stop ND filter and a 10 stop ND filter, those tend to be the most common filters I use. Circular polarizers, I have a love-hate relationship with. On a telephoto lens, a circular polarizer is just money. It, it's awesome because you're dealing with such a small field of view that you're not going to get any kind of strange darkening of the sky because you're seeing such a small portion of the sky that the entire scene is going to be polarized equally. 
that's not necessarily true with a wide angle lens. If you're shooting at 16 millimeters and using a circular polarizer, oftentimes you're going to run into half of your sky being darker than the other half because it's not polarized equally because you have such a wide field of view. Polarizers always darken or richen the sky 90 degrees from the light source, from the sun. Then that effect lessens as you go either further away from the sun or closer to it. So because you're dealing with such a wide field of view with a wide angle lens, you're not going to get equal polarization. So a lot of times if I'm doing a big wide landscape, I won't use a circular polarizer for that reason. But if I'm doing a forest scene or if I'm shooting around waterfalls or anywhere where there's lots of green foliage and vegetation, I love a polarizer because it takes all of the glare off of those leaves and it just deepens and, and makes those colors so much more rich and vibrant. I love a polarizer in a forest scene. So in those situations, uh, I'm always using a polarizer when I remember to. One of the problems that I've had with circular polarizers in the past is that they're really easy to get stuck on lenses because you're dealing with a smaller surface area to unthread. And that's another reason that I like the breakthrough photography filters so much is because they have a really aggressive like uh, tread traction on the outside of the filter and they're much more difficult to get stuck onto a lens. And I will, of course, put affiliate links in the show notes. If you're interested, just go to landscapephotographypodcast.com and look for this episode, or you should be able to open these links up in your podcast app. So the next type of filter is the graduated neutral density filter, the graduated filter. These are the big rectangular filters that you see people like Thomas Heaton using heavily where you slide them down into your holder and it darkens down the sky. There is definitely a time and a place for graduated ND filters. And sometimes it is really nice to be able to slide those in and right in camera, be able to equal out the brightness of your sky and your foreground. It's a catch 22. There are so many times where I think to myself, oh man, that looks so great. And then I get back to the computer and I'm like, I kind of wish I wouldn't have used a graduated filter. And the reason for that is in a way, it's a little bit lazy <laughs> because essentially you are pre-processing. You're almost doing a post-processing technique only in camera where you can't undo it. And you're doing it when the only way to review your photo is on the back of your tiny little LCD screen on the back of your camera. You would never edit on a screen that small because you cannot do a very precise job. And the same is true for filters. It is just very difficult to do a really precise job where you're not going to get run into any kind of strange over darkening of a horizon. Or maybe if you're doing a seascape scene, you're ending up with reflections that are far brighter towards the bottom of your frame than they are towards the top. And it just looks it just looks very graduated filter esque. There's a lot of photos on the internet that I can look at and be like, oh, they used a graduated filter. Oh, they used a graduated filter where it's really, really obvious. And so sometimes when I'm using graduated filters, I do feel like I'm being a little bit lazy because I could almost always do a better job exposure blending after the fact in Photoshop. So I'm just kind of skipping a step and doing it the quick and dirty way which is using filters. It's also the quick, dirty, and fairly expensive way because graduated filters are not cheap, especially if you get a decent sized set. But there is a time and a place. If you're shooting a seascape, they are just 
wonderful for darkening down that sky and evening out the tones and to give yourself a nice starting place for your post-production. That way, when you open it up in Lightroom or Photoshop, you're starting with the entire dynamic range in one scene. As long as you're being subtle and you're really careful about how you're using graduated filters, it can be really nice. But there are some cons. The first one is that obviously it's very difficult to be precise with a graduated filter. So you end up with some artifacts that you have to correct for after the fact. The second thing is they're spendy, they're expensive because you're dealing with such large pieces of glass. Uh, a lot of times graduated filters can really rack up the bucks because you have to buy a big set of them to make sure that you have the right filter that you need for the situation. And third, they definitely slow you down. Graduated filters slow you down a lot because you have to sit there and you, you got to find the right one, slide it in, tweak it, make sure it's just right, and then that's going to be just right for this particular photo. Sometimes that process is nice and therapeutic. Other times it's chaotic and stressful, especially when you're photographing a quickly fading sunset. So I have a love-hate relationship with graduated filters. I recommend them for people that are not great or don't love post-processing. But if you're somebody that has no problem doing exposure blending, a lot of times you can get better, more realistic results, exposure blending in Photoshop than you can with a graduated filter. There are other filters out there and I haven't personally used them, but they can definitely lead to some interesting results. Uh, first of all, if you're shooting a lot of black and white, colored filters can be very interesting. Uh, but the thing is, you're definitely going to be tied down to a black and white shot after using them because uh, these filters, for example, a red filter is going to essentially uh, block out most of the cooler tones of the light spectrum, thus darkening down skies, uh, darkening down all of the blue in a sky. And it can make for some really, really stunning black and white photography. And it can get you to a starting point that would actually be fairly difficult in post-processing because you would have to be tweaking settings so much that you would end up with some artifacting. But to do it with a filter, you can get to that starting place in a much more natural way. Granted, that is that photo is not going to be useful in color anymore because you've just put this really intense red color cast across your image. So... You're definitely stuck to a black and white image, but if you shoot a lot of black and white, a red color filter can re be really, really powerful and lead to really interesting results. Another one is an infrared filter. These are filters that basically mimic what happens in an infrared camera where it's blocking out everything except for the infrared color spectrum. Uh, the filters definitely have a downside where you're going to be blocking out so much light that you're going to be dealing with really long exposure. So you're definitely going to be uh, using this on a tripod and using this before it gets too dark. Otherwise, you're going to be dealing with like four minute long exposures. But infrared filters are a fun thing to play with if you're looking for something new and different and kind of creative. An infrared filter is something that you don't hear about a lot, but they're out there and they're, they lead to some pretty interesting results. So this is kind of leading me into my transition into gear that I've been using and really enjoying. Uh, the first of which is my Mindshift filter hive. Now I used to use Mindshift bags, but I've since transitioned into other bags, but I still love a lot of the Mindshift accessories. And one of their accessories is this filter hive. And what's cool about it is that 
it's a nice, safe, organized way of storing all of your graduated filters, which I'm packing around. I have a full set of graduated filters and a full set of round filters. And this filter hive will hold all of that, plus my filter holder for my filters. Now this hive will only accommodate uh, graduated filters up to 100 millimeters wide. So if you're using great big 150 millimeter wide filters, Hive is not going to work for those. I've been using this, really like it. It's one of my most used little accessories. Over on the Facebook group, somebody mentioned that they'd been shooting on a beach and they had struggled with their tripod getting shook and undermined by the surf coming in and then flowing out and undermining their tripod and shaking it. There were several suggestions for the CD method where you put down three CDs and you put your feet on those CDs and you'd use that on a beach. I definitely want to encourage people not to go that route. There are some serious downsides to that. The problem with doing that is every time you move your tripod, you have to reposition your little CDs and it's just clumsy and clunky and you're not going to be very mobile or quick because you have to get your CDs in the right place. It's just really annoying. Don't don't ever go that route. It just screams, I don't do much coastal photography to me. But so what I do recommend is that you get the three inch spikes from Desmond. Now this is a set of three inch long stainless steel spikes for only 19 bucks. It's a great deal. I use it on my really right stuff tripod. I've used it on all my tripods in the past and it works amazing when you're photographing beaches because that first wave that comes in, you can push your tripod down and kind of use that outgoing tide to help you dig your tripod in. And then from then on, your tripod is not going to budge at all. I've left my camera in, I don't know, probably two and a half feet of rushing water and it didn't get knocked over at all. So I love these spikes. If you shoot in sand or really muddy conditions, they're awesome and they're cheap. So those three inch Desmond spikes, that's an accessory that I've been recommending for a long time and I still stand by them. Another accessory that I stand by and absolutely love are the NRS boundary socks. I know that a lot of people know about these now and I like to think that I've kind of championed that cause because I've been talking about them for a long time. They are basically a wetsuit that goes up to your knee, they seal at your knee, and then you wear some kind of, you know, sandal or cheap water shoe or or super lightweight tennis shoe over the over the bottom. Now you are basically waterproof from the knee down. And when you combine that with a pair of quick drying pants to go over the top or even a pair of rain pants over the top that can kind of tighten down around the ankle. Now you're watertight all the way up to your waist and you've done it in something that can easily fit in your bag. It weighs less than two pounds and it's just amazing. It's comfortable to wear all day and I've wore these water socks. They're called socks, but basically they're like a, a wetsuit legging. I've wore these in freezing cold glacier runoff rivers. I've wore them in the Iceberg Lagoon in Iceland in the Arctic Ocean in Iceland, and I've done that for, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes to an hour at a time and been totally fine. So if you shoot around cold water at all, you're going to absolutely love these things. So one of those things that I've been using for a long time and I definitely stand by there. I always make sure that I take those on my trips just in case I'm going to be shooting around water. So the next and the last accessory that I want to share with you guys is the fact that 
I'm officially changing camera bags. I'm moving away from my f-stop Anja bag. And I did really like that bag. I, I've been using it for a while, probably a year at least now, year and a half now. And it's been a good bag, but there were some things that I didn't necessarily love about it. First of all, the uh, shoulder straps, they're very thin and they're not very padded and they're not very wide. And for that reason, it was never the most comfortable bag. Also, I found the padding on the ICU unit on the inside to be just kind of needlessly thick. And I didn't realize it was needlessly thick until I laid eyes on my current bag and what's going to be my bag moving forward, which is the Shimoda bag. Currently, I have the Shimoda 40 liter. I'm also going to have a 60 liter bag on the way. This Shimoda bag, the I, it also uses internal camera units, ICUs. But the padding and dividers inside the ICU are so much thinner, which makes it lighter and just more efficient with space. And I find that I can fit more stuff in, in the ICU in my Shimoda bag in a smaller space because those dividers are so thin and they just seem to be better designed. There's a lot of things I really love about the Shimoda bag. The zippers all work really well. The material itself is very waterproof or water resistant, weather resistant. Um, it's got kind of this waxy coating on it. I feel very, very confident wearing that out in a rain or a drizzle. And I've been using it for quite a while. I've taken it to Canada, I've taken it to the Oregon coast a couple times. And uh, it's very, very weather resistant. The Shimoda bag, I just feel is a little bit more efficient with how it uses its space. The pockets all seem to hold a lot more. I just feel like I can... I can more easily organize and put everything in there. Plus they have these really cool kind of little pouch things. I don't know how to describe them. They're like an accessory pouch. You can get a small one, a medium or a large one. And basically they're just this uh, zip up pouch where you unzip it and you can put all your batteries. You can put different accessories and stuff in there. And then there's little windows on the outside of that pouch so you can visibly look at it and see what's in there. And it's kind of nice to have all of your stuff in this little pouch. That way you can pull that pouch out, rummage through it, get exactly what it is that you need rather than digging through a pocket in your bag that you can't really see what it, what's all in there and you can't see everything. But in these little accessory pouches, you pull them out and it's really easy to access stuff. The Shimoda bag, I think the biggest difference is just how comfortable it is. The shoulder straps are much wider. They're much more padded than the F-stop bags. And it just, just the way it fits your back it is just super, super comfortable. It's also a lot more adjustable. You can adjust where the straps attach to the bag. And it's just this 40 liter is just the tiniest bit smaller on the outside, the outside dimensions than my F-Stop Anja bag was, even though I feel like I can fit more in it. It just uses its space a little bit more efficiently and it's more comfortable and the zippers work better. Um, I'm just really liking it. I think the the only downside of this bag at all that I can come up with is that I don't really love the way it looks. It's not a stylish bag. Uh, the one that I have, I have the seafoam green and it's just kind of like this girly green color. <laughs> I don't really love it. I've got a navy blue one coming and I think I'll like that color a little bit better. Uh, the F-Stop bags and the Mindshift bags are a little bit more stylish looking. They're cool looking. Shimoda bags, they just look like a bag, just a functional bag. And I'm okay with that. I don't need the style points, I guess. I probably don't walk around with a whole lot of style points anyways. It's 
totally a taste thing. Just because I think that it doesn't look cool doesn't mean that you guys will think that, but I think it's definitely not as a as cool looking bag as the f-stop bags okay so that's it that's all i got for you this week uh thank you guys so much for you know taking the time to listen make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast that way you get notifications every week thank you guys so much and we'll see you in the next episode bye-bye